Chapter Thirteen of Brood of the Dark Moon by Charles Diffin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Happy Valley. Towahg, Chet marveled, "You little devil! It's you who has been following us all this time." I wish he hadn't been so bashful," Harkness added. If he had come out and showed himself, he would have saved us a lot of trouble. But Harkness stepped forward and patted the black shoulder that quivered with joy beneath his touch. "'Good boy, Towahg,' he told the grinning ape-man. Monkey-like, Towahg had to imitate, and this time he gave a reproduction of his own axe. He wriggled toward the entrance of the passage, peered around the edge, and seemed to see something that made him draw back. Then he fitted an arrow to his bow, and springing upright, let it fly. So realistic was the performance that Chet actually expected to see another enemy transfixed, but the squat figure of Towahg was doing a dance of victory, besides the prostrate figure of the first and only victim. Chet reached out with one long arm and swung the exulting savage about. He heard Herr Kreiss expressing his opinion in accents of disgust. "'Ugly little beast,' Kreiss was saying, and murderous. There was no time to lose. The sound of scrambling bodies was coming nearer from the dark pit beyond. Yet even then, Chet found an instant to defend the black. Damned lucky for us that he is a murderer, he told Kreiss. Then to Towahg, listen, you little imp of hell, you don't know more than ten words, but get this. Chet was standing where the earthlight struck upon him. He pointed into the dark where the sounds of pursuit grew loud, and he shook his head and screwed his features into an expression that was supposed to depict fear. No, no, he said. He dragged the savage forward and pointed cautiously to the milling horde below and repeated, No, no. Then he included them all in a wave of his hand and pointed back and out into the night. And Towahg's unlovely features were again twisted in to what was for him a smile, as he grunted some unintelligible syllables and motioned for them to follow. It had taken but an instant. Towahg was scurrying in advance. He sped like a shadow of a passing cloud, and behind him the others followed, crouching low in the shelter of the deep-cut step. No figures were below them at the rear of the pyramid, and Chet reached for one of Diane's arms, while Harkness took the other. Between them, they held her from falling while they followed the dark blur that was Towahg, leaping noiselessly down the long slope. No time for caution now. The savage ahead of them leaped silently. His flying feet hardly disturbed a stone. But beneath them, Chet felt a small landslide of rubble that came with them in their flight. And above the noise of their going, came a sound that sped them on, the rising shout of wonder from the unseen multitude in front, and a chorus of animal cries from the pyramid's top. Chet saw a blot of black figures at the top of the slope, just as they felt firm ground beneath their feet. They followed where Towahg led, in a swift race across the open arena toward the great steps at the rear, black and white in strongly contrasting bands, the rocks reared itself in a barrier that, to Chet, seemed hopelessly unsurmountable. He felt that they had come to the end of their tether. 
Trapped, he told himself, and wondered at Towahg's leading them into such a cul-de-sac, even while he knew that retreat in other directions was cut off. The pursuit was gaining on them. Savages from beyond the pyramid had sighted them now in the full light of earth, and their yelping cry came mingled with hoarse growls as the full pack took the trail. Ahead of them, Towahg, reaching the base of the first white step, was dancing with excitement beside a narrow cleft in the rocks. He led the way through the small passage, and Harkness, bringing up the rear, took the detonite pistol in his hand. One shell will have to waste it, he said, and raised the weapon. Its own explosion was slight, but the sound of the bursting cartridge when its grain of detonite struck the rocks made a thunderous noise as it echoed between the narrow walls. That will check the pursuit, Harkness exulted. That will make them stop and think it over. It was another hour before Towahg slackened his pace. He had led them through jungle that to them seemed impassable, had shown them the hidden trails and warned them against spiked plants whose darts were needle-sharp. At last he led them to a splashing stream where they followed him through the trackless water for a mile or more. The mountain with the white scar was their beacon. Harkness pointed it out to their guide and made him understand that that was where they would go. And when night was gone and the first rays of the rising sun made a quick changing kaleidoscope of the colorful east, they came at last to a barren height. Behind them was a maze of valleys and rolling hills. Beyond these was a place of smoke where red fire shone pale in the early light and set off at one side was a shape whose cylindrical outline could be plainly seen. It caught the first light of the sun to reflect it in sparkling lines and glittering points, and every reflection came back to them tinted with pale green, by which they knew that the gas was still there. Chet turned from a prospect that could only be depressing. His muscles were heavy with the poisons of utter fatigue. The others must be the same, but for the present they were safe, and they could find some position that they could defend. Towahg would be a valuable ally, and now their lives were ahead of them, lives of loneliness, of exile. Harkness, too, had been staring back toward that ship that was their only link with their lost world. His eyes met Chet's in an exchange of glances that showed how similar were their thoughts. Then, at the sound of a glad laugh from Diane, their looks of despair gave place to something more like shame, and Chet shifted his own eyes quickly away. "'It is beautiful, Walter,' Diane was saying. "'The lovely valley, the lake, the three mountain peaks like sentinels. It is marvelous, and we will be happy there, all of us. I know it. Happy Valley. There I've named it. Do you like the name, Walter?' and Chet saw Harkness reply in a quick pressure of his hand on one of Diane's, and he knew that Walt looked suddenly away without giving her an answer in words. Happy Valley. Diane, of all the four, had shown the ability to rise above desperate physical weariness, above a despondent mood, to dare look ahead instead of backward, and to find hope for happiness in the prospect. Off at one side, Chet saw Kreiss, the scientist's weariness, was forgotten 
while he ran like a puppy after a bird in pursuit of a floating butterfly that drifted like a wind-blown flower. And Harkness, unspeaking, was still clinging to Diane's firm hand. Yes, thought Chet, there was happiness to be found here. For himself, it would be more than a little lonesome. But, he reflected, what happiness there was in any place or thing, more than the happiness we put there for ourselves. Happy Valley, and why not? He dared to meet the girl's eyes now, and the smile on his lips spread to his own eyes as he echoed his thoughts. Why not, he asked. Happy Valley it is. We just didn't recognize it at first. They came to the lake at last. Its sparkling blue had drawn them from afar off. It was still lovelier as they came near. Here was the same steady west wind that had driven the gas upon their ship, but here it ruffled the velvet of waving grasses that swept down to the margin of the lake. There was a higher knoll that rose sharply from the shore, and back of all were forests of white-trunked trees. Chet had seen none of the crimson buds, nor threatening tendrils since entering the valley, and Towahg confirmed his estimate of the valley's safety. He waved one naked arm in an all-inclusive gesture, and he drew upon his limited vocabulary to tell them of this place. Good, he said, and waved his arm again. Good, good. Towahg, you're a silver-tongued orator, Chet told him. No one could have described it better. You're darned right. It's good. He raised his head to take a deep breath of the fragrant air. It was intoxicating with its blending of spicy odors. At his feet the water made emerald waves, where the clear deep blue of the reflected sky merged with yellow sand. Fish darted through the deeper pools where the beach shelved off, and above them the air held flashing colorful things that circled and skimmed above the waves. The rippling grass was so green, the sky and lake so intense a blue, and one mountainous mass of clouds shone in a white too blinding to be borne. And over it all flowed the warm, soft air that seemed vibrant with a life force pulsing strongly through this virgin world. Diane called from where she and Harkness had wandered through the lush grass. Christ had thrown himself upon a strip of warm sand and was oblivious to the beauties that surrounded him. Towahg was squatted like a half-human frog, binding new heads on his arrows. Chet, she called, come over here and help me to exclaim over this beautiful place. Walter talks only of building a house and arranging a place that we can defend. He is so very practical. Practical, exclaimed Chet. Why, Walt's a dreamer and a poet compared to me. I'm thinking of food. Hey, Towahg, he called to the black. Let's eat. He amplified this with unmistakable pointings at his mouth and suggestive rubbings of his stomach. And Towahg started off at a run toward the trees that were heavy with strange fruit. By night there was an unmistakable sign that the hand of man had been at work. A band of savages would have accepted the place as they found it. For them the shelter of a rock would have sufficed. They would have passed on to other hunting grounds, and only a handful of ashes and a broken branch, perhaps, would have marked where they had been. But your civilized man is never satisfied. 
Along the mile of shore was open ground. Here the trees approached the water. Again, their solid rampart of ghostly trunks was held back some hundreds of yards, and the open ground was vividly green, where the soft grass waved, and it was matted, too, with crimson and gold of countless flowers. A beautiful carpet, flung down by the edge of a crystal lake, and the flowered covering swept up and over the one high knoll that touched the shore, and on the knoll, near an outcrop of limestone rocks, was a house. Not exactly pretentious, Chet had admitted, but we'll do better later on. It will keep Diane under cover, argued Harkness. These leaves are like leather. He helped Diane put another strip of leaf in place on the roof. A twist of green vine tied around the stem held it loosely. The leaves were huge, as much as ten feet in diameter, great circles of leathery green that they cut with a pocket knife and tailored, as Diane called it, to fit the rough framework of the hut. Towahg had found them and had given them a name that they did not trouble to learn. Towahg's grunts sound so much alike, Diane complained smilingly. He seems to know his natural history, but he is difficult to understand. But Towahg proved a valuable man. He cracked two round stones together and cleaved off one to a rounded edge. He bound this with withs to a short stick and in a few minutes had a serviceable stone axe that bit into slender saplings that were needed for a framework. Chet nodded his head and called Kreiss's attention to that. Herr Doctor, he said, it isn't every scientist who has a chance to see close-up of the Stone Age. But Kreiss, as Chet told Harkness later, did not seem to snuggle up nice and friendly to the grinning savage. He is armed better than we, Kreiss complained. I do not trust him. It is an impossible situation, this, that civilized man should be dependent upon one so savage. For what is our culture, our great advancement in all lines of mental endeavor, if at last, when tested by nature, we must rely upon such assistance? Chet saw her Dr. Christ draw himself aloof with meticulous care as Towahg dashed by, and it occurred to him that perhaps it was as well for Christ that the black one knew so little of what he said. But aloud, he merely said, You'll have lots of chances to use that mental endeavor stuff later on, Doctor. But right now, what we need to know is how to get by without any of your laboratories, without textbooks or tools, with just our bare hands, and with brains that are geared up to the civilization you mention, and don't do us a whole lot of good here. Better let Towahg show us what he knows. But Herr Kreiss only shrugged his thin shoulders and wandered off through this research man's paradise, where every flower and insect and stone were calling to him. Chet envied the equanimity with which the man had accepted his lot, had come to this place and was prepared to spend his remaining years collecting scientific data that were to him all important. Again the sun sank swiftly, but this time Chet stretched himself luxuriously upon the matted grass and turned to stare at the little fire that burned before the entrance of Diane's shelter. His pocket fire flash had kindled some dry sticks that burned without smoke. 
We will be a little careful about smoke, Harkness had warned them all. No use of broadcasting the news of our being here. We have come a long way, and I think there is small chance of Schwartzmann's party or the savages finding us in this spot. Beyond the fire, Harkness raised himself now to sit erect and glance about the circle of fire-lit faces. There's plenty of planning to be done, he said. There is the matter of defense. We must build a barricade of some sort. As for shelter, we must remember that we will be here a long time, and that we might as well face it. We will need to build some serviceable shelters. Then, what about clothes? These we are wearing are none for the better, for the trip through the jungle. They won't last forever. We've got to learn, Lord. We've got to learn so many things. And the first of many councils was begun. End of chapter 13